Well, welcome to Salem Chapel. If you're new with us, we're so glad that you're here this morning. If you're watching us online, we're glad that you tuned in today. My name's Johnny Pereira. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here, and we are so glad that you came today. Let's first talk about uh, the elephant in the room. Everybody's wondering, based on uh, the announcement that was made on Friday in regards to uh, just a whole lot of stuff in, in how we move forward uh, with COVID. Uh, while I'm thankful on where we are, I was like, I was watching and I was like, hey, could you, couldn't you have thrown us a bone and not done this on Friday, knowing we have services on, <laughs> on Sunday? Uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, but I wasn't called to ministry to be the pastor of COVID protocol. I, I know that's hard to believe, um, but uh, I'm very thankful and actually really proud of the way that our staff has, has, uh, has led through this. And uh, instead of me shooting a video on Friday or Saturday um, to let you know kind of what we were going to do, I just didn't think that that was fair, nor was it prudent. Uh, we want to make sure that we're uh, being responsible as we go into this new season. And so we just knew today was going to be kind of a day where we were going to get a lot of questions and a lot of different things. And we were like, well, rather than release something that causes more questions, uh, I will be doing that this week. Um, our staff has already been uh, thinking about these things and being prepared for these things. We just weren't thinking we were going to have to roll it out on Friday. Um, so uh, at the same time, that's an awesome thing. So be looking for that this week. I promise you it's coming. Uh, I don't like to live in the land of ambiguity. Uh, it's actually the land that I try to avoid at all costs. And the Lord's been stretching me during this season. Uh, but if you call Salem Chapter your home, we'll be sending out something this week that will explain how we're going to move forward in all of our ministry environments. So uh, I'll just state that at the get-go so you're not like wondering, is he going to say something? Is he not going to say something? So we've eliminated uh, that temptation for you. Um, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We'll not put that uh, reference on the screen yet, but I just want you to go there so that you can be ready when we jump to it. Uh, I want to make it a point to uh, just let you know where we've been. We've been in the third week of this series entitled, Why Church? Because I don't know about you, but the reality is, is many of us fall into different categories. Like some of us are just now starting to re-enter society, so to speak. And, and uh, for, for, for me, like I saw some of you and it's the first time I've seen you, like from your nose down. And, and it's like meeting a new person. And we've had so many new people come to Salem Chapel in this last year. And I just, if you are that, you probably heard me say this to you. Like, hey, we're just going to have to, like you get to see me. But I'm just going to need to meet you all over again. And, and while I know that's exciting, at the same time, here's the reality. Some of you have just started entering now back into what we would call normal, if that's a word we can use anymore. Maybe this is your first Sunday back in church in person. If that is, man, I'm so glad that you're here. Others of us, maybe uh, we, we started that a while ago, whatever it is. But here's what I know. There's some that... There's a bit of anxiety uh, uh, to re-enter into the things that you did before. That's real. And there's others of us that maybe uh, that's so not, not so much the case because, because we've been kind of operating as normal for a while now. And I think that gives us tremendous opportunity because as we wrapped up 1 Peter, remember we, were, we walked through that verse by verse from January all the way uh, through the end of April. And I was really praying, Lord, what, what are we supposed to go through as a church? Because normally I have it calendared out the entire year. And, and once again, COVID you know, taught me to, to be flexible. And so I was just praying and I was thinking to myself, you know, the reality is, is a lot of us, we've, we've had to watch church online, we've Maybe health concerns have caused us to maybe not be able to gather in person. And I think it's a tremendous opportunity for us just to go to God's word and allow it to tell us and answer for us that question, why church? Like, why do we do this? Like, who am I in relation to the church? Who started the church? What's the purpose and the mission of the church? 
How is the church supposed to act towards one another? What are the convictions of why church should be something integral to my walk with the Lord? Like those are good questions. And as I said when we started this series, we have different answers to those questions. But here's what I wouldn't want to be an answer for you. Well, I go to church because I don't want to feel guilty. Or I go to church because I don't want God to do something to me that I don't want. Or, or I go to church just because it's always been a part of what I do. I don't want that to be your answer, and neither does the Lord. So this is a tremendous opportunity for us to go to passages of Scripture and allow the Lord through his word to tell us why church is important. And I think there are opportunities in our lives that we always need to bring ourselves back to the why behind the what. Like, like I get paid to do this. Like, I really don't have an option not to show up to church, right? And it's good for me to be reminded. It's good for my family to be reminded why this is so special. And really, that's what we're going after today. Uh, I mentioned this last week, but I want to mention it again. There was a recent Gallup poll showing the effects of the pandemic on mental health. I think we all could identify that we've struggled in some shape or fashion in this last year in regards to just how we're thinking, our mental health. This was written on December 7, 2020. It was entitled this, Americans' Mental Health Rating Sink to a New Low. Now, here's what this article laid out. It said that 34% say that their mental health is excellent, which that was shocking to me that it was that low. Well, in 2019, it was 43%. So it dropped from 43 to 34% in 2020. And the article said this, America's latest assessment of their mental health is worse than it's been at any point in the last two decades. So that's what we're dealing with in our country. Now, here's what stuck out to me more than anything else. They put this chart on this, in this article. It's on the screen. Here's what stuck out to me. That there was only one group of people that jumped four points. That their mental health was actually better in a year of a pandemic than it was before. Do you see what it is? It's those who attended a religious service weekly. It's interesting that those who attended eh, every so often, maybe monthly, like, okay, God, I'm doing okay, like, I'm, I'm, I'm tuning in or attending in person monthly, you actually see that it dropped 12 points. Now, this, mind you, is not a Christian article. There's nothing Christian about this. This is just simply a Gallup poll. Now, listen to me. I didn't need a Gallup poll to tell me church is important. Hopefully, you didn't either. But I do think it's interesting that here a secular study drives home a reality of what God's word already said. That me being engaged in my relationship with the Lord is vital to help me navigate through life, through the good and through the difficult. So we've been talking about church, this being the third week, so I'm gonna give you the definition that we've given the last two weeks. So if you're new, I encourage you to write this down. If you're an English major, let me just, let me just set, set you up here. This is gonna be a run-on sentence, right? I used, to get, I used to get killed for run-on sentences when I wrote, but at the same time, I wanted to be thorough. I didn't wanna be cutesy with this definition. So here's the definition I came up with, church. Church is a people redeemed by God through Jesus Christ. Let me stop right there. So here's what makes me a part of the church. It's not that I give financially to the church. It's not that I even have my rear end in a seat every week. It's not that I serve. It's not that I'm a part of a life group. That's not what makes me a part of the church of Jesus Christ. What makes me a part is that I have placed my trust in Jesus' perfect life, perfect death, and resurrection for my sin. I have been redeemed. I have been bought back. Jesus paid the debt that my sin deserved, which was death. What I deserved was hell and eternal punishment and separation from God for all of eternity. But Jesus came to redeem me. So if you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ this morning, you are a part of his church. That's so important. A church is not just a gathering. It is a called out people. That's that word church, ecclesia. So a church is a people redeemed by God through Jesus Christ whose mission 
is to love God and love one another. That's straight from the two greatest commandments. As they do what? As we do what? As we make and mobilize disciples who represent the gospel to every man, woman, and child. So that last piece I threw in there because that's part of our mission statement as a church. The church is a people with a mission. And it was instituted by Jesus Christ. That's what makes you, that's what makes this special. As well as over this entire globe right now. Some places it's Monday, some places it's Saturday. For us it's Sunday. That there is a church across this globe of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every color, every background. And they are a part of the church because they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is a mystical, beautiful, special thing that you get to be a part of if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That this church universal across the globe is made up of churches just like ours. So I say that to be clear, but what I want to talk about this morning in regards to the church, I want to make specific to Salem Chapel. Because after all, this is Christ's church that we get to be a part of. And so here's the title of the message this morning. Church is a community. We've talked about who started it. We, last week we talked about the mission. But here's what else makes the church unique. The church is a community. Now let me read Romans 12, 9 through 13. Hopefully you're there by now. I definitely gave you enough time. Romans 12, 9 through 13 says this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saint. Seek to show hospitality. He actually goes all the way down to verse 21 telling us what this community is supposed to look like. So here's the idea that I want you to get today. Here's what I want you to see from this passage of scripture, it's this, that a church is a community whose interactions towards one another are defined by Jesus' love towards them. Like a church is a community. Like you were not created. Jesus did not create the church so that you could live in isolation. Listen to me, I'm so thankful that we can provide church online. We've spent tremendous resources to be able to do that. We talked about it for a long time and COVID kind of pushed us into it because we knew the work and the money that it would take. And after all, we, like so many other churches, were forced into that. We did that for 15 weeks. I talked to an empty room. It's so great to see your faces. I'm, I'm so thankful that I get to do that now. But we did that for 15 weeks. And then we continue to provide it. Because we know we have people that couldn't worship, maybe still can't because of health concerns or whatever it is. And, and so we've done that. We're thankful for that. Many of you who are new in this church since last year started watching online first. And we're like, hey, that's a church that I want to be a part of. We're so thankful for that. We're so thankful that when you go on vacation this summer, yes, you get to do it this summer, that hopefully you're like, you know what, we're going to take time, even though we're away, to tune in and to be connected to our local church. Those are amazing privileges of technology. But here's why we didn't do it. We didn't do it so that this would be normative for you. So that this would replace the church. Because what we're going to see today, and we even saw last week, that you can't get around the fact that the Lord created his church, and that's you and that's me as followers of Jesus Christ. But he created us to do church in community. So I say this out of love. If you're watching, whether it's in Florida, whether it's in Canada, whether it's on the West Coast, and we got people tuning in all over the place, I'm so glad you're watching right now. But if this is replacing church, you're not doing church. You're watching us do church. Because church is a community whose interactions with one another are directed by Jesus's, are defined by Jesus's love toward me, toward you. 
That's so important. Because if my interactions to you and your interactions to me are defined by me, then I can easily treat you in a way that benefits me. I could treat you in a way that is not scriptural because you've hurt me. But no, 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 no. Our interactions, what we're going to unpack this morning, the reason why Paul gives these under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is because these are the ways that Jesus has modeled for us. Now, here's what I don't want us to do. I don't want us just to jump into verses 9 through 13 and not understand the context of what happened before that. Here at Salem Chapel, we like to walk verse by verse. Normally, we do book studies, and we walk through the entire book. So to jump into a passage of Scripture, I don't like particularly doing a lot of topical series because you're jumping into things and you don't understand the context all the time. So we're going to understand the context of Romans 12 because it's going to help us understand what we're going to unpack in verses 9 through 13. So actually jump up to verse 1 of Romans 12 where Paul says this. Many of you may have this memorized. I appeal to you, he says, to the church at Rome. He's writing to the church at Rome. To therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, you need to underline that phrase. So because of God's mercy extended to you through Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, like that's paramount, here's what you need to do in light of what Jesus has done for you. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. So in other words, Lord, my life is not my own. My desires are not to be uh, fulfilled for myself. Lord, my life, everything that I have is yours. Because you gave every, up everything for me. So my life is a living sacrifice. That is how I worship the Lord. He lays that out. That's gonna be fundamental to what we look at in verses nine through 13. Then he says, verse two, do not be conformed to this world. In other words, don't allow the world to put its mold on you. Don't allow the world to tell you how to think. Don't allow the world to tell you how to live. No, no, no. You are people who have received the mercy of God in your life. So what does he say? But rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind, this ongoing process that as I grow in my relationship, with the Lord, as I see what God's word is, which is his will, as I allow that to grow me in my relationship with the Lord, I'm beginning to change the way that I think. I'm beginning to see, no, 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 that's not the way that I go any longer. I used to go that way. The world told me to go that way. Now I'm going to do what the Lord tells me to do. And look what happens. He says that you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know how you know you're growing in your relationship with the Lord? What God's word says no longer looks like a killjoy to you, but it actually looks at something you desire. You see it as good. Why? Because you're growing in understanding God is good. Well, why is God good? Well, God is good because of the mercies of God. He's good because Jesus Christ came and he lived and he died and he rose again and he rescued me from what I deserved. That's why he's good. So if God is good, then that means his will is good. And every evidence that that is a reality is through Jesus Christ. Now, if you're like me, you're more analytical. How many analytical people we got in the room? All right, my peeps. So here's the next question that you wanna ask because Paul, his writing style is very analytical. So he's like, Here, here's, what, here's what I'm saying, here's why I'm saying it, let me give you the reasons why that's the case. I love the way the Holy Spirit uses the way that Paul writes. Romans 12, three through eight, he answers this question. Well, what does a transformed life look like? Like I'm supposed to do that, but what does that look like? Look at verse three. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. We're gonna talk more about that here soon, but he says, but to think with sober judgment, to think clearly according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, God has gifted you with certain gifts, not by chance, but for a reason. He says, verse four, for as in, you ought to circle this, one body we have, and then circle this, many members. Once again, driving home, church is not made to be lived in isolation, it's a community. And the members do not all have the same function. Verse five, so we, though many, 
are one body of Christ and individually members of one another. Remember last week, if you're here, we spent time to read 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul gives the analogy of the church as a human body. Every part is important. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, I have this underlined in my Bible, let us use them. That's why I say, I can't use my gifts the way that God has gifted me if I am not involved in a local church community. Can't do it. He says, if prophesy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So he's driving home the reality of what we looked at last week. We're all gifted with gifts, not to use for ourselves, but to use to benefit the community. Now, here's what's possible. This is what's possible. It's possible to be a follower of Jesus and use your gifts in the church, in the community, but do them in such a way that the Lord didn't intend. You can be a follower of Jesus and use your gifts, but use them in a way to serve yourself rather than one another. That is possible. And if we were being transparent, we could all point to times in our life, if we're really being transparent and introspective, where we've probably done that. I'm doing this more out of what someone thinks of me than I am to actually benefit the Lord and others. Like, we've we've all been guilty of that. So how should our interactions towards one another happen? Well, they need to be defined by Jesus. So here's what I want to do in the rest of our time this morning. I got 11 ways. Now, here's what I know. You're like, 11 11, like usually we got three. 11, listen, I have been in, I have listened to more messages than I can remember. And some of them I do remember and some of them I don't. Uh, And so I remember what it was like to sit where you sit and the pastor's like, I got 11 points, 10 points, eight points, 15 points. And I'm like, already I'm doing the countdown. Got 14 left. Four more to go. And so we're going to go through these quick, but I don't want the fact that I said 11 to cause you to already be like, holy cow, this is the first week I've been back and we're doing 11. (laughs) But I really want you to use these 11 things because you saw there's a lot in verses 9 through 13 and say, no, 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 Lord, I want these to kind of be a, a checkup on how am I living in my personal life and how I view the one another's in the community that I'm being a, am a part of, and am I interacting with one another in this church as defined by how Jesus loves me? This is a great diagnostic check. And just to be transparent, as I've gone through these things, as I've laid my life before verses 9 through 13, there was things that I need to confess, there was things that I need to say, you know what, I've allowed that to lax. And so let's be open to what God wants us to say, but at the same time, we're gonna go through these fairly quickly. Here's the first one. It comes from the beginning of verse nine. It says, let your love be genuine. First of all, you love sincerely. This is the first way that you know your interactions towards one another are being defined by Jesus according to God's word. Your love is sincere as it's directed towards one another. Why do I say that? Because it says, let love be genuine. That word genuine has the idea of sincerity. Many of us are very familiar with the different words in the New Testament in the Greek for love. This is agape. Most of us know that agape has the idea of selfless. It has the idea of it's willful. It's self-sacrificing. Anytime you see Jesus talking about love, he's referring to that agape love. We know that. We have the greeting cards. We read 1 Corinthians 13 in our weddings. Like, we're very familiar with that word. But it's very easy to practice it, isn't it? Now, what you need to understand is the culture in which Paul is writing here, that this type of love was not something that was admired. It was actually seen as a form of weakness, So people did not aspire to love selflessly. It was part of the culture to love selfishly. 
So when Paul writes this, this would have been completely countercultural. But in reality, not much has changed today. We just aren't as blatant to admit that this isn't a type of love that we strive to live. But nevertheless, the importance is the same. See, what we need to understand as we look at this passage of Scripture is that love is more important to a Christian, to you, than any spiritual gift that you have. It's the most important thing. If we're going to think about the church in terms of a body, love is the circulatory system in the body of Christ. Now, here's what I know. We live in a medical community, so we got a lot of physicians in the room. So now I'm about to venture out into uh, waters that are not normally charted by me. So I get that. So you know what I did to, to, to just understand a little bit about the circulatory system? Well, I went to a trusted source. I went to WebMD. <laughs> so if I say something wrong, doctors, correct me afterwards. But here's what I found. A healthy circulatory system, here's what it does. It allows your lungs, your heart, your muscles to function properly and efficiently. It allows you to fight off and avoid potential diseases and sicknesses. It keeps your organs in its best working order. It's a key indicator of the health of your heart. So when we think about the church as a human body, which is what Scripture does, and we think about how we are to love according to this passage of Scripture, which is selflessly, here's what that tells me. We cannot have a healthy body here at Salem Chapel if we don't have a healthy heart. And the way that we have a healthy heart is that we are looking to love others the way that Jesus loves us. It's the two greatest commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as what? Yourself. Bro, nobody needed to teach me how to love me. Nobody needed to disciple me in that. I did really well on that on my own. I do really well on that on my own. I never have to think twice about how do I live for me. Jesus knows that. He knows that's our nature. So when I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and I realize how Jesus selflessly loved me and how he's changing me, what that means is I'll begin to see in my relationships that I will begin to love people more sincerely. It's no longer manipulative, but it's selfless. Because I understand how Jesus loves me. That's the first one. We're not spending that much time on all of them, all right? Don't get nervous. Here's the second thing. It says, abhor what is evil, the second part of verse 9. Here's what the second thing that we do in our interactions with one another as defined by Jesus. You hate evil. I hate evil passionately. That word abhor is a strong word. It literally means to hate it. Now, there's a reason why those are connected. Because if I'm loving people sincerely, I can't do that if I'm not hating evil passionately. Like, the church should be the most outspoken to injustice and evil when we see it. We ought to be the ones who call sin, sin. We ought to be the ones that say, no, 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 that's not right. We ought to be the ones who are looking to go after poverty and go after racial injustice and to go after all the different injustices that we see in the world. It should be the church. Why? Because we've been loved by God sincerely. So therefore, if we're going to demonstrate that love, then we need to run from evil rather than tolerate evil. That's the point. Here's the third thing. You hold the good tightly. You see the end of verse 9? It says, hold fast to what is good. See, these are all connected. If I'm going to love sincerely, then I need to run from evil. I need to call it out. I need to look to be a part of the solution, not the problem. And in doing that, I have to hold to good tightly if I'm going to love sincerely and abhor that which is evil. Why? Because you and I can't hold on tightly to multiple things. I can only hold on to one thing tightly. Philippians 4.8 says it this way. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You ever ask yourself, why did he say think and not do? Well, what did we look at in Romans 12 on? There was a purpose why I read those verses. It wasn't just to take longer in my message. Because in Romans 12, it says the way that I'm transformed is by renewing my mind. And as I renew my mind, and the way that I renew my mind is by spending more time in God's word, all of a sudden I will see God's will, which is God's word, as good as I said, rather than just a book that tells me what I can't do. So when Paul, same person that wrote Romans 12, says to think on these things, the reason why he says think is before I ever do something, I've thought it in my mind first. So what is good? What is lovely? What, are, what is these things? You know what it is? It's God's truth. So when it says hold on to good tightly, it's another way of saying hold on to God's word tightly, which means I have to hold everything else loosely. So I need to hold God's word tighter than I even hold to my relationship with my wife who I dearly love, who the Lord wants me to continue to love. So I'm not saying I look at that as, as inconsequential, no, no, no. But I hold God's word the tightest because if I'm not doing that, then I'm not gonna love my wife who normally sits right there. I'm pointing at an empty chair if you, if you haven't been here before. I love my kids, I love them dearly. I would give my life for them. But the way that I'm a dad, the way that God wants me to be a dad to them is I hold on to God's word tightly. The way that I'm a friend, the way that God wants me to be a friend is I hold on to God's word tightly. See, we can go the way I am at, at work, the way that I exemplify that Jesus changed me is I hold on to God's word tightly. See, many of us, the problem is, is in this last year and a half is we've allowed ourselves to hold on to other things tighter than God's word. Fear, anxiety, shame, guilt. I don't know what it is. You do. I do. I know what it is for me. And we've got to start seeing this as our lifeline. Remember I went to a camp when I was in high school in Brevard, like North Carolina, not too far from here, a few hours from here. And like 25, 26 years ago, can't remember exactly. It was, in the, it was in the late 90s, okay? So as I reflect back, safety protocols were a lot less stringent back then because I was like climbing this cliff on this, on this hike and they had these long ropes and I'm like climbing and I'm like 15 feet up in the air and it was wet and I slip and I almost fall but thankfully I held onto that rope again. No safety harness, nothing. I guarantee you it's not that way anymore. But you know, when I think of holding tightly, I think of how I held that rope. <laughs> Listen, I didn't hold that rope. It's like, eh, if I fall, no big deal. Like if I would have fallen, someone else is gonna have to carry me the many miles somewhere else, let alone how bad I'm hurt. What did I do? I held on to that rope tightly. Why? Because at the time, that was the only thing that was keeping me from falling. That's the idea. Listen, here at Salem Chapel, we just don't want to say things. We want to be intentional with them. We're rolling out a whole litany of discipleship tools in the fall, but we've already introduced a Bible reading tool in this last year. You can access that at salemchapel.org backslash discipleship tools, and it will help you read God's word. Because this is what we hold on to tightly. Let's keep going. I promise you I'm not gonna spend this long on all of them. You guys are getting nervous. You're like, bro, we're at, we're at three. Here's a fourth Verse 10, it says, love one another with brotherly affection. Here's what else we do. We love fraternally. Now, if you're like me, you're like, well, he already said love genuinely, so why in the world would he talk about brotherly affection? 
Well, here's what you need to understand. Many of you know my, know my story, know my background, know, know my family that I grew up with. I have five younger brothers. There's a picture of them up there. Uh, these are all of my brothers, right? You see, three of us didn't get blessed with the quaff, and the other three did. We just say those of us who are bald have more brains. Um, and then you see my father and mother there. Uh, my dad would be fine in me saying this. Uh, my dad is a, is a proud Puerto Rican man, but we joke with him that he is a dead ringer for Saddam Hussein. <laughs> so if he comes here, he, he will laugh. I'm not saying something. But anyway, what's my point in all of that? I'm about to say something, and you're going to judge me for it, but just hold on, okay? Spare the judgment. I have five younger brothers. If I didn't know them at all, I doubt any of them would probably be my friends, Here's what I mean by that. Like, we got different interests. We got different personalities. Nobody else has my personality amongst our brothers, and, and, uh, and I don't have theirs, obviously. And so there's not a lot in common. We have some things in common, but some of us have different interests, different talents that, talents that are on the different complete spectrum than myself and vice versa. But what makes it the reason why I love them to death what makes it a reason that I can tease them all day long and pick on them as the oldest brother should, but you better not? What is the reason for all those things? Because, man, we have the same last name and we're family. That's the reason why Paul says not just to love genuinely, but to love with brotherly affection. Listen, there is a bond, in un- and there needs to be a bond in understanding, no, 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 I'm a part of a family here. Like, I love that there is people from different backgrounds and people coming from different states and people coming from all different situations and people coming who have different nationalities and all these different types of things and colors of skin. Man, that's what's awesome about the family of God because in our differences, what unites us is Jesus and our acceptance of that reality of what he's accomplished for us. That's what bonds us as family, and we will be family for all of eternity. That's what causes me to never give up on a family member. That's what causes me to say no matter, and thankfully this isn't the case for us, but I know for many of us it is, unfortunately, we have family members, some are estranged, but we would never say, I give up on that person. Why? Because they're family. And the same ought to be true in the church. Listen to me, transparently, I got people that are followers of Jesus Christ that we haven't been able to see eye to eye on things. And I've reached out and I've done certain things to try to reconcile certain relationships in my life and, and that just hasn't happened yet. But I'm not giving up on them. This love fraternally, we need to be reminded of that again because that's what makes the church special. I could teach all day on that. Verse, here's the fifth thing. You show honor humbly. You see the second part of verse 10? Outdo one another in showing honor. You know, it's our nature to want to outdo everybody, right? She got this, so I want this. He got that. I don't think he deserves it, so I want to one-up, right? We're always looking to one-up one another. I think it's interesting that what Paul does is he turns that upside down and says, you want to outdo somebody? Strive to show more honor. That word honor literally means this. It means to put others first above ourselves without ulterior motives. It's the essence of humility. Now, here's what's awesome about that. If we all are focused in treating one another that way, everyone's needs are met. You know, like you're sitting down with a couple in marriage counseling and they're, you know, every couple, I'm susceptible to this to too, when you're having problems, you're going in thinking, if you just would fix her or him, we'd be good. But you know what happens in a couple when they're each looking to serve and love one another? Guess what happens? Their needs get met. The same is true in the church. If we're looking, looking to exercise humility, 
looking to give the benefit of the doubt, looking to extend grace the way that we want grace extended, all of a sudden you begin to create an environment and a culture where people want to be a part of that. Why? Because we are showing honor humbly. Here's the sixth thing. It's found in the first part of verse 11. You live for the Lord passionately. It says, do not be slothful in zeal. You know what that tells me? There is no room for lazy Christians. None. Christians ought to be, have the most zeal of anyone. Some of you got a little bit more zeal today because it's the first week we started serving coffee again. But as much as I like coffee, I don't need coffee to serve the Lord with zeal, to live for him passionately. Why? Because that word literally has the idea, and you see it there as well. It says, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Here's the seventh thing. You serve the Lord diligently, and I want to connect those two. I live for the Lord passionately. I serve the Lord diligently. I'm fervent in spirit. In the way that I serve, the way that I live for the Lord, that word fervent literally means to boil. So if our lives are a steam engine, what is inside of that engine that is producing that steam to power that locomotive of our life is the reality that I have been saved by the Lord, that I have limited time on this earth, and I need to maximize it because when I'm dead, I don't get a redo button. It's not like when you guys are playing video games, you're like, oh man, I lost my five lives, let me hit restart. Doesn't work that way, we know that. You talk to people who are in their 70s and their 80s, And you know what they'll say? The most valuable commodity in my life is not what retirement I have, what cars I drive, what house I live in. It starts with a T. What is it? Time. Time. Now, here's what's interesting. We like to think, oh, man, I'm like like 25. I got another 65 years on this earth. You don't know that. I don't know that. And it's about getting up every day and saying, Lord, how do I maximize this day to serve you? Fervency has the idea of attitude. It's having the right perspective and it's having the right priority. The perspective is in understanding, no, 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 everything that I've been given is for the Lord. That's the perspective. The priority is, is I'm gonna live every day for the opportunity to advance his gospel and his glory. Here's what I mean by that. So often we wanna make that so sound so theological and complex. Listen to me, I hate board games. I spell them B-O-R-E-D. There's one board game that I like. If you were paying attention, I've said this before in a message. I love the game Sorry. It is a simple game, but it's a game of domination. And I can play Sorry to the glory of God. Now if my family was in here, They were in the 9 a.m. They would say, you do not play sorry to the glory of God. You play it to the glory of Johnny. But my point is, is I can play a board game to the glory of God. Why? I can gather together in a room with friends and we can have fun with one another. And you know what that's doing? That's glorifying God. You can go on vacation this summer, right? Praise God. You get to do that this summer, Lord willing, right? You can do that and you can live for the Lord passionately and you can serve the Lord diligently. How? You can go on your vacation and before you go on vacation, say, Lord, would you give us an opportunity to show someone that Jesus has and is is changing us and even give us the opportunity to share the gospel with someone as we're away? Would you allow this time to be a time that we can just gather together as family and to celebrate you and the goodness of you in our lives? That's what I mean by that. So often we want to separate, well, that's secular, and what we're doing right now is sacred. No, 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 everything is sacred. That's Paul's point. So everything that we do, we're doing it for an opportunity to make a kingdom impact. And when we're all focused that way, Man, we have a machine that is making a difference in this community and around this world. Here's the eighth thing. This is the beginning of verse 12. 
Rejoice in hope. You live hopefully. And how do our interactions with one another, how are they defined by Jesus' love for us? Man, we live hopefully. It says rejoice in hope. Why does it say that? Because you and I can't survive without hope. Doesn't matter if you're a follower of Jesus or you're not. You can't survive without hope. That's how God has wired us. And so because we can't survive without hope, we often want to misplace our hope. We want to look at different things that can never deliver on what they promise. I've had things in this last year that I placed my hope in that was revealed as misplaced hope. Because when they were taken away, all of a sudden I was discouraged and I was down and I was just just hating life. Why? Because I was misplacing my hope. Paul says here, rejoice in hope. And how do we rejoice in hope? We rejoice in the one where hope is anchored. Listen to me, you can be here today and you are going through a difficult, hard reality in your life right now. And you're saying, man, my hope is found in that being removed from my life. And I get that, and I understand that, and that's not even a bad thing. But if my hope is rooted in a circumstance no longer being a reality in my life, when that is removed, there will be something else. But if my hope is anchored into Jesus, who is my living hope, as we looked at in 1 Peter 1 back in January, all of a sudden now that hope gives me perspective to rejoice in what I'm anticipating to happen rather than what's happening now. So if I'm going through something difficult, it's me saying to myself, Lord, I want this removed. There's nothing wrong with me praying for you to remove it. But Lord, would you give me perspective in this? Would you give me strength in this? Would you help me to see you clearly in this? Would you help my hope in you to be shine brighter in this? And listen to me, if you're doubting this morning that Jesus is your hope, would you look again to the empty grave as the sign that he is the one where your hope can be found? We gotta live hopefully because here's why. Because there's people right in this room, even in this room, and you're like, man, I'm so thankful for what the Lord's teaching me in reality to that. There's other people in this room that are struggling where you used to struggle and they need you to wrap their arm around them and to encourage them in the lessons that you have learned in living hopefully. And some of you are trying to do it on your own and there is a community of people, including our pastoral staff and our elders, where you just need to reach out and say, I'm struggling with hope. We live hopefully. Here's the ninth thing. You face hardships persistently. I think it's interesting that all of these are connected in verse 12. You be patient in tribulation, it says. And the reason why is life's not easy. Suffering is unavoidable in this sinful world. But God uses those things. He doesn't cause those things, but he uses those things to strengthen our faith. I've gone through things in my life that I wouldn't at all compare to some of the things that some of you are going on in your life. But the things that that I've gone through in my life and the Lord has, has taken me and put his arm alongside of me and in many ways carried me and led me. You know what it's done in my life? It's given me more empathy to other people. It's given me more empathy to other pastors because I'm like, man, I've been there too. And I know it's not fun, but I can tell you that the Lord is gonna use that to make you stronger. See, we need that in our community. To encourage one another to do what? To face hardships persistently. And how do we do that? Well, he says there, the last part of verse 12, we need to be constant in prayer. See, the 10th thing is we pray constantly. We got a prayer tool that we'll be rolling out in the fall. You can see it in our cafe room, which doesn't it look nice? Our cafe room. We're rolling that out in the fall. Because 
When we face hardships persistently and we're called to live hopefully, that doesn't happen without us praying constantly. See, that's what trials do. They are designed and used by God to cause us to draw us to himself, to cause us to fall on our knees, to lay down our self-sufficiency and to embrace dependency and to look to him. That word constant literally means an ongoing conversation. And it's not so much as we need to be literally whispering out loud so that someone thinks we're insane. That's not the idea all the time. But no, 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 it means like, okay, I'm taking time with the Lord this morning and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my needs to him and I'm gonna seek him and praise him and have time with him on a daily basis. But when I get up and go to work, it doesn't mean I stop talking to the Lord. Man, I can talk to the Lord when I'm in my car. I can talk to the Lord before I go into a meeting. I can even be praying in my head with a situation that's going in at work and saying, Lord, I need your wisdom right now. It's an ongoing conversation because when you do that, it reminds you that you need him and that he is with you. And oftentimes... We don't see what God wants us to see and wants us to do in the church because we don't have enough people in the church committed to praying. Here's the last thing. You give generously and hospitably. You made it. You made it through all 11. Verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That word contribute means to share in. Say, no, 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 no. If this is a need of the church, and this is my need as well. I'm not a consumer, I'm a contributor. Hospitable. Man, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta, we're gonna have to be intentional with this, right? Because so many of us, we've shut off our mind to actually see people as people to interact with, it's been really easy to see people as a threat, hasn't it? People are longing for relationship right now. What does it look like to have a conversation as you drive out of here and saying, man, who do we need to have over this month? Some of you have the gift of hospitality, man. You can cook to the nines and you love to have people over to your house. And others of you, if you were thinking about someone coming over to your house, you would be in sweats. Not sweatpants, but like sweats. But maybe it's like, hey, let's go out to dinner. Hey, there's a new couple, man. Let's, have, let's get to know them better. Hey, we haven't gotten together as a life group in a while. Man, who do we need to connect with that we haven't? Who, is, who, who haven't we seen in a while? Like, that's part, of, that's part of community. And let me encourage you as these 11 things, as we've taken time to just lay them out, that you would just allow these things during this week, that you'd say, Lord, where am I life? Can I praise you and how you're growing me? And where am I life? Maybe do I need to confess something as sin because I've been purposely not doing that? Or Lord, you've challenged me that I need to give more attention to this. Because at the end of the day, what drives these things? It's not do better, do better, do better. I gotta, I gotta do this on my, no, no, no. It's knowing that Jesus has done them for me. He's given me the Holy Spirit. He's equipped me to do what he's called me to do. So let's live in it. Would you stand with me this morning? God, we're here today to give you glory. We've come into this room as the church Lord, knowing the amazing reality that when we gather into this room, it becomes the church. And when we leave it, it's just a building. When we go out of this place and we get in our cars, Salem Chapel goes into their community. But God, there's no way that we can show the love of Jesus to people who don't know it if we're not loving one another and serving one another the way that you've called us to. So God, may Salem Chapel be a place that is constantly growing in these things that you have given us in your word so that we can be the church that you've called us to be. God, we thank you that you are our savior. It is what we know and it is what we praise.
In Jesus' name, amen.